Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Clever Girls Know podcast. This is Bola Shokumbi. I'm the founder and CEO of Clever Girl Finance. The Clever Girls Know podcast is a podcast for women, offering a space for conversations around personal finance, business, life, and living. I'd love for you to subscribe to this podcast, and you can do that everywhere you listen to your podcast episodes. And if you love what you listen to, head on over to iTunes and leave a review so that other amazing women just like you can find this podcast as well. I'd also love for you to stop by clevergirlfinance.com. We have new content on the blog multiple times a week. We have over 30 plus free courses. Plus, when you sign up for a course, you can talk to a Clever Girl Finance mentor for free to get encouragement, motivation, or if you just want to have an open, no shame, no judgment girl talk. Finally, check out our YouTube channel. Just search Clever Girl Finance on YouTube. And if you don't already follow us on Instagram, you can find us at Clever Girl Finance. Okay, so let's get into today's episode. Hey, Kisa. Hello, Bola. How are you doing? I'm wonderful, and I'm so glad that we got to get this together. I'm so excited about chatting with you. Yes, I'm excited to have you here to talk about you know, a really important topic, and that's how women of color can thrive in the workplace by recognizing and working through key issues that impact all of us, right? So I'd love to just dive straight in and starting with you telling us who you are and what you do. Absolutely. I'm Kisa Shreen, and I am the author of the books Gambling on Green, as well as the book Corporations, Compassion, Culture. And it's really focused on leadership in terms of diversity, inclusion, and equity and belonging, and how leaders, no matter what your title is, how leaders can play a role to really help companies get to where they need to be in those areas. And Corporations, Compassion Culture is your first book, and Gambling on Green is your second book. So I'll have you tell us about your second book a little later on in the interview. But in your first book, Corporations, Compassion Culture, you talk about experiences that Black people have had around work and the workplace historically and issues that still impact us today. What historical events based on your research and your experiences, have sown the seeds of distrust between people of color, particularly Black people, towards corporations, organizations in the workforce? Sure, Bola. So if we look at the workforce very broadly, you know, a lot of people think about big corporations that exist now. But if we go back just 100 years, not too, too far, there were about 1 million Black farmers in the U.S. in around 1920. Now, in 2022, there are about 45,000. So that number has significantly dropped. Whether we're talking about Black farmers not getting the same access to loans and seeing that as a part of the reason that they lose their farms, that's just one piece of looking at how many times people can feel marginalized. It's because they don't have the same access as others. We can talk about that, or we can talk about longer than that, 100 years ago. Plus, I talk about in my book, a story around entrepreneurship. There was a grocer in Memphis, Tennessee. And those who are familiar with Ida B. Wells and her work will know this story. And this grocer was owned by Black grocers. And it was very close to another grocery store owned by white grocers. There was a mob that ensued. And it was, according to the story, because some children were fighting. And then it ended up in the situation where adults were fighting. 
But the long story short, the owners of the people's grocery, the grocery store, the black grocery store, they were killed. And many people believe that that mob killed them simply because they were seeing greater sales, more customers than their white counterpart. So we can all say, you know what? That was 1920. That was 1890. That was so long ago. Haven't we gotten over that? You know, aren't we now in a place where 100 years later, we're beyond that? Well, the point of telling these stories is so that we can see that there are systemic practices when it comes to withholding services. In my book, I also talk about Black funeral homes and just the origin of them, because in many situations, if you were Black, you couldn't get buried by a white funeral home. Thus, the need for that lack of funding lack of resources. So communities could not rely on the mainstream for these resources and for funding. And also, if we look at where we are now, we see that there is a lack of informal mentorship, informal sponsorship. Now, I'm not talking about what companies set up, but I'm talking about the types of mentorship and sponsorship that we've seen for decades, for centuries. There is, in many cases, a lack of that. And so because of those things, and that's not to mention, that's just right in the corporate space. That doesn't even talk about situations like redlining, which was okayed by government, legal by government several years ago, back in the 30s. And as a result of redlining, folks of color were restricted to only get mortgages in certain areas with certain zip codes. And now if we want to make connections to that, we can see that many times those areas And those zip codes had a lot of environmental issues. And we can see underlying conditions, which is what they call the start of the pandemic, that help people become more susceptible, if you will, to issues, health issues. We see that that's because of the zip code where they live. And we can point that back and dot that back to redlining. All these things really distrust, discontent in corporations, as well as broader society. So, Bola, I think that's why we really need to think through how we can deal with those systemic issues before we can get to a place of healing, to really understand where the solutions are, and then from there to heal from the past injustices. Yeah, and the statistics that you mentioned are very eye-opening. Well, not statistics, but the facts, right? The decline in the number of Black farmers, And it's something that when you look back at the history books, you see that coming out of slavery, right, Black people struggled and then figured out how to thrive, right, human nature. And they figured out how to to thrive, but then there was this intentional sabotage, like the decline in farmers because they didn't have access to capital, to loans, mobs, destroying Black businesses. There are so many stories. If you're listening to this, you can just do a Google search (laughs) and you'll find a lot of history. And then it goes from direct sabotage to now systemic sabotage, right? Recent example, because when people say, well, one of the things you mentioned, well, that was 100 years ago. It doesn't matter now. Why can't we just get over it? It does still matter because you go to recent times as more as recent as the recent pandemic, you think about the PPE loans, right? And the majority of people who were locked out of those loans were Black and brown people simply because they did not have a banking relationship with primarily white, predominantly white managed banks, right? And I had even written a, you guys on the podcast have heard me talk about this, but I wrote a statement on, of the record about this particular issue and the challenges that Black women in particular are facing with getting financing during the pandemic because of these systemic issues. And that was for the House Committee on Financial Services, Diversity and Inclusion. So what you're saying is so important. And a lot of that now translates into the workplace where it's no longer 
direct sabotage, but now systemic and indirect. So that kind of leads me into my next question, which is racism exists, right? Maybe it's more subtle ways in today's world compared to a hundred years ago. But how do we identify this subtle sabotage in the workplace? How do we identify racism in the workplace? And then what is the first thing we need to do when we experience this? Well, a lot of people now are talking about, we heard quiet quitting for a number of uh, weeks, months, and then we heard quiet firing. And so from that, and as many of you all know, quiet quitting in many cases has been defined as people simply setting boundaries. So saying that, you know, instead of me giving my extra evening hours to work, I'm going to choose my family. I'm going to choose myself. I'm going to choose my pet. So that's been one definition. I've heard another side of the coin to present on um, both sides saying that quiet quitting is just people not putting forth 100%. You know, I've heard that and I've disputed that, but I've heard that in many cases. So some people see it as me choosing to put myself first to replenish, nourish, regenerate myself so I can show up in a great way, in an innovative way as a worker, as an internal partner, as an employee, whereas others see it as not putting forth their best effort. So those are kind of the two ways that people describe it. Now, quiet firing, on the other hand, is when folks who are generally in managerial positions stop giving the employee, the worker, the internal partner access to what they need to do their job well. And that could be ending access to communication, but it can also be ending access to support. So no longer supporting that person, no longer giving them mentorship to help them get from point A to point B. And Vola, I've discussed another phenomena with some of my colleagues and that's silent sabotage. And with silent sabotage, as you mentioned, what kinds of things are we seeing now? It can be with someone inside the organization in a position of power, talks negatively about a person, about their work. So it's not a manager talking to the employee about how they can improve some skills, how they can get trained, but it's someone who's not a manager, but who has a senior position who speaks with others throughout the firm about an employee um, in a negative way. And what does that do? Why is silent sabotage so important? Well, if someone has influence in a firm, if they're in a leadership position, generally people follow their lead. Generally, people like to make them happy. And so if I'm in a leadership position and I say negative things about Vola's work, negative things about what Vola brings to the table, if I devalue Vola in front of others, that will leave other people to not only not give my work a chance if they don't know me well, but that could also lead them to begin to socialize negatively about me. In many cases and many times, that's how folks get managed out. And so we really have to be mindful of that sort of thing. We also have microaggressions. And the reason they're called micro is because for some people, they're small in nature. And that could be something as simple as when someone is at a table at the conference room giving their input, no one commenting. Or one thing that I personally had had happen to me years ago, when I would say something, someone at the table would feel the need to translate and say, oh, well, what I think she's trying to say is X. And someone could say, that's pretty minor, Kisa. That's someone just simply looking to bring your language in a way that others can understand it. But what I have to ask myself is, why can't others understand if I'm speaking you know, English and if that's the language that's being spoken around the table? Why can't they understand it? Those things that are hard to put your finger on, which is what I'm describing, those are really seen as microaggressions. And those are the sorts of things, Bola, that we really need to be mindful of. 
Kevin Nadal, who is a professor of psychology at John Jay, he describes and defines microaggressions as everyday, subtle, intentional, or unintentional behaviors toward historically marginalized groups. And so I really think it's important for us to identify when we see silent sabotage and when we see microaggression and really find ways to let the other person know, but also to find ways to create policies to make sure that we can end those things. I've heard that you can't legislate good behavior. You can't put a law and make folks behave well because we're all asking each other, what is good behavior mean? Well, if we as an organization, as a company, if we have a value statement, and if we understand our mission, that is the foundation and the starting point for defining good culture, what culture means for us in our organization based on the work that we bring to market. And those are some of the things that we need, that sort of very clear compass of what we want to do and how we want to do it and the culture that we want to do it in. That's the sort of thing that we need in order to create policies to ensure that microaggressive behaviors are seen as negative and that they're rooted out. And silent sabotage is seen as unacceptable and it's rooted out. Just because it's legal does not mean it's ethical. And so that's something that we really need to focus on when we're looking to create cultures that really foster innovation and really make employees, workers, partners feel that they belong and feel that they want to innovate. So I have a couple of follow-up questions based on what you said. Number one is microaggressions being managed out, silent firing. This happens. Everybody of any race can tell you that they have had this experience, right? But like you said, studies have shown that it's more so targeted to marginalized groups. So Black people, brown people, minorities, women. When it comes to an individual in that space, right? So you're talking about change from a corporate culture. But for me as an individual, I work in a corporation that needs to implement this culture change, right? That needs to implement policy. But what power do I have if I am the one that's experiencing the microaggression? I'm not an executive. I'm a a worker. I'm not a superpower at the company. And I ask this because I have personally, when I was working in corporate America, I faced microaggressions time and time again. I mean, one particular instance that I thought of as you were speaking was in an executive conference room. I had a status update meeting I did every month. And there was constant microaggression in this meeting where my white male counterpart would give his update. And if the executives did not agree with him, there would be a discussion, right? A productive discussion. Whereas when I gave my updates and they did not agree with me, the response would be, well, I've been working at this company since before you were born. (laughs) You know, that is a direct microaggression. I can put my thumb on that and said, this executive said this to me, this is a microaggression. So for someone who, who is me now in that space, right? How do they respond? How do they to enact that change in this company that needs to to adjust their culture? Because what happens, especially with Black women that I've talked to, that I've seen is that a lot of us will tend to retreat. We will silent quit. We will be like, you know what? I'm not going to deal with this. I'm going to prioritize my family. I'm going to prioritize my mental health. I'm going to find a new job. I didn't silent quit. I had the comeback in the meeting. I would say, well, you know what? The statistics state this, the data says this. So whether you were here before I was born or after I was born, data doesn't lie. And that was me, but not everybody that should not have had to be me, right? Mm -hmm. I shouldn't have had to be in that situation where I'm justifying why I'm valuable enough to work here because you have been here before I was born, right? So 
as someone who's listening to this, who is just a regular person in a company that needs to address this culture change that you have discussed, what can I do? So I'm going to start with a story, basically why I'm here, why I wrote my first book, Corporations mm-hmm. Compassion Culture. I was similar to you, Bill. I was in a room, except this time it was me talking to my direct manager. I recognized, and I talk about this in my book, that I, I felt that the atmosphere had become a little chilly, if you will. The others on the team weren't exactly including me in discussions, professional discussions, casual lunches, whatnot, just wasn't being included across the board. And I felt that I had a lot to bring to the table. I was relatively new to the team, had only been with that specific team for maybe a couple of months. And I had a one-on-one discussion with my manager and I said, you know what? I really want to bring value to the team. I want to support in the best way that I can. I want to give you exactly what you need. If you can just give me, let me know what you are looking for. Let me know before we get too far down the line, what the needs of this group is right now and will be in the future. I want to make sure that I contribute, that I support, and that I'm a team player. The manager looked at me and said, well, Kisa, sometimes I really don't think the synopses in your brain are connecting. (laughs) When we're talking to you, I really just don't think that you get it, that the synopses in your brain, I don't think they connect. And that's when I knew that I was in a situation that that I'd never been in before and that was going to be a relatively challenging one for me. And I'll tell you in terms of what I know now that I didn't know then, because your question was, what can you do if you are an individual contributor, you're not a senior leader, you're not a managing director, et cetera. One thing that we always have the power to do, Bola, we always have the power to organize. And when I say organize, I don't mean after something happens only. I mean, even before, when we're early into our career, our tenure there, there are employee resource groups and affinity groups. Generally, these groups are founded to create a safe space for the various cultures, genders, ethnicities, et cetera, within an organization. So to promote the culture and to create a safe space, that is a great place to discuss these issues and to really engage with other folks to make sure that stories are known and that policies can be created and cultures can be changed. Now, you mentioned, Bola, you said, you know, I was an individual person. I called them right then and they're on it. That's certainly a way to go about it. And in many cases, I always say people's personalities are different and we really need to understand what we're most comfortable with. And if you go to an affinity group or an employee resource group, that's where you can find your mentors, your sponsors, if you don't have them already. And those people who are in positions who can really make sure that your story is socialized and that you understand how you want to address HR, if that's your next step. You understand how you want to address that person's manager, if that's your next step. What's really important, Bola, is that companies have different cultures. There are so many ways that we can impact change, and that really depends on what the organization, how it's structured, how large it is. So I don't want to say there is one fat, hard, and fast rule to do that, but what I will say is support is important. We shouldn't have to go at this alone. We shouldn't have to sit across and say, you know what, I have the data and I know that you were doing this since before I was born, but this is where the data is leading us. You shouldn't have to defend the way your brain is constructed and prove to somebody, well, my synopses really do. You shouldn't have to do that. No, we're not neurosurgeons. We're here to do a, a job in corporate. With that said, support from others is critical, whether it's a trusted mentor 
or a trusted sponsor or your own manager. That could be a way. And also employee resource groups and affinity groups. That's what they're there for, to really talk about the things that need to change and to present to HR and senior leadership. So I would suggest that looking at a person's corporation, the size, the region, et cetera, thinking about those two ways would be the best way to go about it initially. So definitely exploring any employee resource or affinity groups that you have access to. And at the time that I was in corporate America, my company did not have any such thing, right? Because I was working as a true minority. I was the only Black woman in the team. I think I was one of two women. I was also the youngest person. So we didn't have those resources. But if your organization doesn't have this, then this is the next step is looking outside of your organization, right? Looking within your network, looking towards minority-focused networking groups. Like Mm -hmm. Just because your organization doesn't offer it doesn't mean that you can't seek the help outside. And I think... If you are in a job, in a career path that this is where you want to be and you you belong here, then you can be the initiator of starting those groups in your organization as a way to encourage them to make that culture change, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's it. No matter where you are, you can start it. You can be the change that other people are seeking. Because if you have an issue or if you have a problem, chances are there's someone in your organization who has the exact same issue, a very similar problem. So you can be that change. And also, Bola, for those in your audience, I know you have loads of entrepreneurs. If you experience this with potential clients, that's a tough situation, right? If you are a supplier or a vendor, and if you're experiencing this with the company that you work with, that's a great time to, as you mentioned, go to these outside organizations, go to these industry groups and say, hey, I really want to engage this customer, but this vendor management team or this onboarding person, this is the pushback I'm getting. What do you all suggest? I think that whether you are a freelancer or a consultant or whether you are inside a corporation really looking to organize with others, or if you're already organized, to engage that group is the best way to go to really think through the best approach to come out understanding how to move forward in a successful way. Hey everyone, before we continue with this podcast episode, I'd love for you to check out the best-selling Clever Girl Finance book series. There are three books in the series, and the first book is Clever Girl Finance, Ditch Debt, Save Money, and Build Real Wealth. The second book is Grow Your Money, Learn How Investing Works. And the third book is called The Side Hustle Guide, Build a Successful Side Hustle and Increase Your Income. You can also check out my fourth book called Choosing to Prosper, Triumphing Over Adversity, Breaking Out of Comfort Zones, Achieving Your Life and Money Dreams. And this book highlights my personal story to building a business of impact and challenges you as the reader to dig deep into laying out what you truly want to accomplish for yourself. I wrote each of these books to empower women just like you to achieve your goals and get to the point where you're living the life you desire on your own terms. If you love these books, be sure to tell your best girlfriends and they also make the perfect gift. These books are available everywhere books are sold and you can purchase them as ebooks, audiobooks, and also physical books. And you can also ask your local library to order them as well. Thank you so much. And let's get back to the episode. And just speaking with you, Kisa, I can tell you're very like level-headed, right? <laughs> because I'm, I'm a little bit the opposite in the sense that I might get told that the synopsis of my brain is not connecting. Listen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It wouldn't be good. Right. It wouldn't be pretty. <laughs> when I was younger, it would not be good or pretty. Right. As I get older with experience, 
I know that certain reactions are not going to lead to any solutions. And I think it's important for everyone to keep in mind because a lot of times as a Black woman, your defense mechanism is it's inherent to who we are Mm -hmm. just because every day, all day you get attacks, you have expectations. There is a stereotype about who you are. So you have your defense mechanism in there, but I think it's important to be, to be mindful that you control your reaction, regardless of how, however anybody chooses to behave to you or to speak to you, you choose how you're going to react and you choose how you're going to enforce a resolution or solution that supports you as an individual, as a black woman. So it's important to keep that in mind. You know, I know that I, I, I was laughing because when you said, I'm like, oh my God, I can totally relate to this. <laughs> and I know what the younger Bola would have responded. I would have I killed them with kindness, but the way I kill you with kindness <laughs> would not be a positive way. <laughs> <laughs> But I would still be working there. A sense of a little shade would come with that kindness. Exactly. You wouldn't you wouldn't be able to fire me. <laughs> you raise a really good point. I have a life coach and she's, I love that you said level-headed. She's very level-headed. Hopefully she's rubbed off on me. And she has this booming voice. And when she talks to me about these issues, she'll say, Kisa, how do you want to show up? Kisa, what do you want to take from this? Kisa, who are you trying to become? And so I have her voice when I'm engaging and I'm thinking to myself in her voice, Kisa, who do you want to become? Where do you want this experience to take you? How do you want to leave this building, leave this office? If you're with someone in the office space, leave this engagement. Who are you trying to become? How can this help you become that person? And in some cases, it would help you to become that person to let the other person know immediately and in uncertain terms, what you have done was inappropriate. What you said goes against policy. And in other cases, depending on you know what that engagement is, it would be to engage HR immediately or to engage a manager immediately. So again, you know, you have a brilliant audience, Bola, and I know that they're going to understand, you know, in this situation, I need to just really be clear and say, this is what it is. You were inappropriate. This is something that we need to take up with management versus talking to the broader affinity group, talking to HR, that sort of thing. So I, but I really, I would really challenge people to understand who do you want to become and how can this experience help you get there? Yes. And for me as a Black woman, one thing that I started to, I guess, grow in my career experience and just be clear on who I wanted to be. Yeah. I also came to the, the the idea that and the resolution that I deserved to be there, right? I deserve to get my paycheck. I deserve to get my raise. I deserve to be in this position as a Black woman making impact in tech. And I'm not going to allow your minimizing comments, your stereotypes about me, whatever you feel to push me out of this position I deserve to be. Because sometimes issues in the workplace with microaggressions are not representative of your company. It is an individual or individuals in there who are pushing those microaggressions. And you want to think big picture so you don't allow those individuals to push you off of your ambition or push you out of your path. You know, because if you allow that to happen and you engage with them in that negative way, you fall into their stereotypes, then you are at the disservice if you get the the reprimand, if you lose your job. And like you said, there are ways to handle it. Maybe you bring it up 
with management. Maybe you have the conversation with your affinity group. Maybe you make HR aware. And a, a usual pushback I will get from some people will be like, well, HR doesn't care. HR is not going to support me. HR is they're only for the company. Then that's a bigger issue. And I think maybe that's not an issue you walk away from, right? Because if your human resources that's there to be a neutral and even employee-focused support is not doing that, then you should call that out, right? Yeah, I agree with that. And I'm going to talk a bit about something I discussed in my second book, Gambling on Green, which is focused on environmental social governance, ESG, and how that really impacts us as corporate citizens, as individuals, whether we are working for a company or freelancing. One thing that you mentioned is, is HR for us or against us. Corporate governance Corporate ethics is so important right now. And you know what? We have the ability to use our voices in a way that we did not have years ago. We have access to social media. Those who are in the corporate structures know that we have access to social media. We have access to be able to share our experiences with other senior leaders. The last thing that a board wants, the last thing that shareholders of a company want, the last thing that they want is to hear that their company is not treating an employee well, is not treating employees well, is not treating a community where they're doing business well. And so in understanding that, and that's where we are right now, that is a reality. We've talked a lot about climate and the environment over the last couple of years. And now we're seeing that conversation pivot into the social structures. How are we treating our workforce? How healthy, mentally healthy are workers? How are we ensuring that those who work in environments like factories are physically safe? These are conversations that we're hearing more and more. This means that the focus is on workers' health, workers' happiness, because many companies know that when you have happy partners, and I call workers partners many times, happy partners, they're innovative. And with innovation comes greater revenue. And with revenue comes more access to capital, et cetera. So with that said, we don't want our companies to be places where there are unethical practices, where there are no policies that benefit the worker. So we have a voice in a way that we did not have a voice before. And that should hearten us to understand the importance of HR's role now. It might be a bit different than before, but now their role is to really work with workers in a way they hadn't worked with them before because they know if there is even a hint of impropriety or a thought of unethical behavior, that that would cause a media frenzy. And that's the sort of thing that companies do not want. So I'd like to let the, the audience know that as well. We have a voice in a way that others didn't have. And I know many of us listen to our parents, our grandparents, we hear those experiences and we take those Keep to heart. down. You know, exactly. Hold the feathers. Do the work. Yes. Do the work. Yeah. Exactly. But now things are changing. And I would say for the better where we have the power that we did not have before. And I would really advise all of us to think through what that means and to organize in such a way where we can have even greater power as a collective. I agree. And, you know, for anyone who is saying, well, that's not my HR group, it's thinking through, okay, what does HR represent in my company? And is it the entire structure that is off that I feel like this is not an approachable group? Or is it an individual within that group that is not upholding the HR standards that my company wants to represent? So it's it's really important to differentiate between the two. Because a lot of times, especially with corporations learning 
and making changes and wanting to adjust their histories and sometimes having to be forced to adjust their histories, whether they like it or not, because this is a new era. This is a new age. You're going to have to accommodate if you want to stay in the space. Like you said, most companies are not here to see you not do well, to, to not have you there. Right. So it's something to think about. But shifting gears a little bit, I want to talk about women, especially women of color in positions of corporate leadership. And in one of the chapters of your book, you talk about past perceptions and current realities of women in, in corporate leadership and how there is a slow emergence or slow entry of women of color into corporate leadership roles. How can we change this? So we want to see this increase. And I know that many companies from an investment perspective, some companies know Goldman Sachs was one of them that said, if you do not have a certain number of women, people of color on your board, then you know don't expect to get funding from us was essentially the message. Mm-hmm. And I think that those who are in the those positions. So we have different stakeholders, right? Right now I'm talking about the investors. Those who are investors, usually institutional investors, can make that, make that plea and make that clear and understood. But also those of us who are retail investors, right? Who have 401ks and who are, you know, have pensions, we have power to really use our voices so that those institutional investors who are investing our money in portfolios and funds, they can understand what's important to us. So that's the investment community and how that can operate. If you want access to our capital, you need to listen to us. Individuals as retail investors can make sure that message is communicated to institutional investors to ensure that there's greater representation at the senior level. From an employee perspective, we can really make our voices known, as I said before, collectively, when we are part of affinity groups, when we're part of employee resource groups, we have a large number of people who can come together and say, listen, we understand that when a company is diverse at the senior levels, they're more profitable. We're not diverse. We aren't really competing in, in a good way. Let's talk through how we can hire with diversity in mind. Let's talk through how we can promote from within with that in mind. How can we ensure that everyone's upskill, they're trained on what is coming down the pipeline for the company in terms of marketplace, in terms of competition? These are ways that employees, that stakeholder group, can make sure there is a larger number of women and people of color in senior leadership. So those are two stakeholder groups. We have the investors and what they can do, employees and what they can do. Last but certainly not least, we have consumers. So all of us fall into that category. Mm -hmm. If we are doing business buying from companies that we know don't have our values at heart, we can change that. We can stop consuming. We've heard of boycotts that go, I mean, that, that goes back ages, boycotting. There are boycotts now where you only buy from certain vendors, certain companies, because their values align with yours. Um, and also in that group, we have community. So if a business in your community is really not focused on building up the community, really not focused on hiring from within that community, but yet they set up shop there, there is a way to do that too, collectively using your voice. So I would say these different stakeholder groups, investors, employees, consumers, and those in the communities, really leveraging the power of the collective, getting together, clarifying what it is that you want. For example, we want to see more women of color in senior leadership positions. 
understanding the benefit of that. When there are more women of color in senior leadership positions, we see companies that can do well. We see companies that have a clear understanding of what their target audience wants because we make up X percent of the target audience. When they do that, that's when the successful outcomes can really, really happen. So think about which stakeholder group you fall in and then where does where is your community? Where is that collective? Where does it lie? And then from there, really making that known to senior leadership. This is what we are demanding and this is why it's important to the business. And that's a fantastic way to drive that forward to ensure that we can get more women of color in senior leadership roles. Yeah, yeah. I And I agree with everything that you said. I used to work at a company where one of the things that they did was during employee quarterly reviews, they would do upward feedback. So they would give you, your manager would give you your own feedback about what you need to improve, what you've done great, et cetera. But there was a section in there where you could provide upward feedback to the organization. And that was an opportunity for us to state concerns or ask questions. Mm -hmm. And I think even if your organization does not have a formal upward feedback approach, if as an individual, if you're part of an affinity group, you can ask questions, right? What efforts do you have in place to recruit at minority colleges, to recruit women of color? What are your plans to have more women in leadership? Simply asking those questions tactfully, professionally, and submitting them to senior executive, to leadership, to HR gives them time to pause and think. Even if they don't take immediate action, the fact that they have received it and they read it means that you have tap something in somebody's head somewhere. Exactly. And I love that that upward approach. I'll tell you another another grouping or another type of mentorship that not many companies have. And I know that Barry was impactful for me. That's reverse mentoring. And so that's Mm -hmm. a situation where basically the tables are changed. My mentor was a chief revenue officer of the company and I was pretty junior. So that gave me the opportunity to speak with them about issues that impacted me as a newer employee, as someone who was on another end of the demographic spectrum. And that's valuable to a senior leader because many times they don't have a sense of what's going on on the ground. They don't really know some of the concerns that the vast majority of certain groups inside the organization has. So when you talk about giving that performance review and giving an upward review, I think that that would be really good for companies to think about. And for us as individuals, if your companies don't have that, make the recommendation, as you just said, Bola, make sure that you say, hey, I think that this is something that could benefit. I know we have mentoring programs, but reverse mentoring, this is how it can help our senior leaders really have a sense of what's going on and how we can give them advice as more junior members or newer members of the team. Really important to share that. These are all really great points. You know, just to go back to some of the things that you said, especially for those of you who are tuning into this, right? It's important that we are aware of the history of just Black people and work and thriving and business, just to understand why we are where we are here. And just because it happened 100 years ago doesn't mean that it's not relevant. It has just changed, right? It's gone from direct to more subtle to more undefined. But being a minority in the workforce, in a corporate environment, in entrepreneurship, as you have seen and statistics continue to show, pursuing financial wellness can be a challenge. It's challenging for people of color. It's challenging for women of color. So it's important that you don't ignore these and you don't retreat, right? So consider everything that Kisa has said before you decide to quiet quit, right? What 
actions, intentional actions can you take knowing that you deserve to be here? You deserve to have the seat at the table to make your value at the table. You bring value. You are well equipped to do this. Don't let any systemic situation or individual push you out of the place you deserve to be. So identifying those microaggressions, calling them out, having that communication and providing feedback to senior executive, to HR, to making sure that HR does their jobs, Yes, <laughs> right? There's a reason why every company, big organization has an HR, right? They should be doing their jobs and supporting you as an employee, finding the mentors, taking advantage of any affinity groups within or outside of your organization, being intentional about networking, right? Um, there are so many networking groups for women, Black women in business, women of color in business and entrepreneurship in different career uh, niches. So explore those and leverage them. And then uh, I just wanted you to talk about your new book, Kisa, because you have a new book, which you talked about very briefly um, tell us about this and how it is relevant to us as individuals. So the new book, Gambling on Green, Uncovering the Balance Between Revenues, Reputations, and ESG. And it really focuses on some of the lessons from corporations' compassion culture in terms of the social. So ESG, environmental social um, governance, that social piece. Why why should your people be the most important part of your business? Well, without people, you have no business. Mm-hmm. And I really look to show the connectivity between environment and social and governance, treating people ethically, ensuring that the people who are within your company feel psychologically safe as well as physically safe, ensuring that they have the tools, the resources, the training to develop and innovate and help gain, um, help generate the revenue that you want. And also reputations. And I would definitely say that um, all of the clever girls out there in the audience would really do well to understand the company's reputation. Do your own research. Just look at what's being tweeted about your company or your industry. You know, what is the word out there on it? And from there, you can get a good sense of where there's room for improvement. Part of my job, well, part of what I do is to consult companies on how they can improve their corporate culture. And generally that all starts with the people. It starts with those who within your company, understanding what your company does well, understanding what your people are proud of, what they want to bring to the table, understanding what they want to contribute to make your company shine. And then from there, building out the culture. So really focusing in on that piece of ESG, environmental and social governance, is very important to me. As I said before, there's a lot of conversation about climate. We see a lot of regulation policy around climate. My goal is to ensure that that same degree of focus that we put on those climate conversations and policies that we also can turn it to the social, the workplace. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can have a focus on the climate, on the environment. We can also have a focus on how we treat workers, how we treat suppliers and ensuring that those who are in the communities where we do business are treated well, that we hire from within those communities, that we don't, for example, set up shop in in an indigenous community without getting their permission, without speaking with them, without engaging them, without ensuring we're not disrupting their environment, their climate, as so often has been the case. So those are the social issues 
that I really confront and that some of the use cases that we talk about in the book confronts. And so again, I really, really would love to see some of those clever girls out there focus in on what your company does well from the social perspective, from the workforce engagement perspective, understand where there can be improvements and feel free to reach out to me or to look within to understand what type of policies do you need to really make your company that aspirational company, that progressive company that it can be. I love your mission and what you do because a lot of times when we're thinking about us as women, as women of color thriving in the workplace, a lot of time the burden is on us to create the space that we want to be in, to call things out, to, you know, create our boundaries, to think big picture. A lot of it is falling on us, but I love the fact that you are showing corporations how and why they need to hold themselves accountable. And it's not just the individual's job to make you aware of the change and the shifts that you need to be making. So I love that angle because you now have this corporate slash organization slash, you know, big business or general business accountability push where this is also on you, right? It's a collaborative effort. It's not just me, the individual who's working here, who has to call everything out, (laughs) but it's you who is going to implement and enact the change. And this is how you can get ahead of it before it becomes an issue for me as an employee, as a partner, like you said, right? Yeah. Because without me, there's no business for you, right? Without, Without us, there is no business. And also we need to ensure that companies, that they're held accountable. And they also know what accountability means, know what they need to be held accountable for. For a company to do well in the future with where we are in society, they have to be progressive. They have to understand that people come first and only those that do that will be able to compete in the future. There's no doubt about that. Agreed. Agreed. He said, this has been awesome. I asked every guest who comes on to tell us what their Clever Girl superpower is. So tell us your Clever Girl superpower. <laughs> right. I love this question, by the way. I, I love that I'm a Clever Girl and I love to have a superpower. So I, I, I take that on. My Clever Girl superpower is to continue, always look to continue my learning journey. I always have an audiobook that I'm listening to or an ebook or, you know, dig into a digital publication. So that is a superpower for me, always continuing to train myself to upgrade myself in all ways. I love that. I love that. Well, thank you so much for being here. And finally, before you go, please tell everybody how to keep in touch with you, where they can find your books and all that good stuff. Absolutely. So get in touch with me on LinkedIn. I have a newsletter called ESG 360. Again, ESG stands for Environmental Social Governance. ESG 360 on LinkedIn. So feel free to reach out to me, Kisa, K-E-E-S-A. And I'm one of the few Kisas on LinkedIn, Kisa Shreen on LinkedIn. Also on Instagram. And I tell you, Bola, really the way to get in touch is, of course, connect with me. But I love to get your comments and your thoughts on my posts. And that's really the best way for us to engage. So you'll definitely hear back from me too. If you comment or give me some feedback, you will hear back from me. So really excited. All the Clever Girls out there and supporters of Clever Girls, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn and engage with my posts. And I'll definitely be able to chat with you back. Yes, and we will include all of those links for how you can connect with Kisa in the show notes. So thank you so much for your time and for sharing your wealth of knowledge with us. I appreciate it. Thank you. And Bola, it's great to be your Wiley book sister. Bola and I have the same (laughs) publication firm. So really, really great to support and congratulations on all the fantastic work you're doing. Thank you. And congrats to you too also. 
Thank you so much for tuning into this episode and I hope you enjoyed it. If you've loved the episode but you don't yet subscribe to the podcast, you can do that everywhere you listen to your podcast episodes and head on over to iTunes and leave a review so other amazing women just like you can find this podcast as well. Thank you so much for being here and I'll talk to you on the next episode.